Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jim McNamara. Our guest this episode is Chief Pat Maloney, a recently retired 39-year member of the Chicago Fire Department who rose through the ranks to become the Chief of Special Operations. Chief Maloney, a lifelong resident of Chicago, has also served in his beloved United States Marine Corps, as does his son, Rory. Chief Maloney, welcome. Thanks for having me. Chief, let's start from the beginning, if we will. Uh, Can you tell us about your early life? I grew up in the city of Chicago, born on the west side of Chicago. Uh, My parents, uh, Irish immigrants, Grew up in a tight-knit community. Uh, everybody knew everybody. It was kind of neat. You think about the old days as uh, there wasn't decks or patios in the back so much. Everyone sat out front or talked to the neighbors. So so you couldn't get away with anything, you know, <laughs> any mischief at all. So my father was a bricklayer, uh, had his own construction company. My brothers and I, I was the youngest of six, three sisters and two brothers. So uh, when I worked with my dad, I got yelled at early in life. So told me a, <laughs> gave me a strong work ethic of uh, what work was supposed to be about. All my Catholic upbringing, uh, high school, grade school, and then uh, sports and scouts and just a genuine uh, kid of the 60s and 70s. So. Amen. I can relate to that. Did you always dream of being a firefighter? Uh I always respected the fire fighters. I, I, you know, see them time to time. I just was, you know, awestruck. Like any typical kid, you or you're walking down the street or riding your bike and you see the see them going by. You always were impressed about it. Believe it or not, I always wanted to be a police officer growing up. I thought about that. I always joke. My brother was a he's a retired police lieutenant. I always tell him I spent the, the extra hundred dollars to be a fireman. So. Anyways, but that was <laughs> that's great. Now, can we talk about your early experience with the Marine Corps? Now, if I understand the story correctly, you joined the Marine Corps after beginning your Chicago Fire Department career. I did. Now, I graduated high school. I was looking at the Marine Corps, trying to have a direction. Uh, thank God, kids today and my kids are you know had that. We pushed that. Uh, my parents were about work. I remember saying I wanted to go to college, and my dad goes, what, you don't want to work? So <laughs> anyways, and that was it. Uh, so trying to figure out things, you know, I ended up joining the Marine Corps after five years. I didn't go in. It was like something that I always had an inch to do, and I came out in 81, and there was a lot of, well, uh, there was quite a few, World War II vets, Korean War vets. I mean, if you do the math, uh, they were at their end of their career. Yeah. And uh, so I was just in awe shock of listening to the stories of the South Pacific and the Battle of the Bulge and Normandy. And I mean, just, you know, the Frozen Chosen and Korea and hearing the stories of that. So I was a mature Marine recruit at MCRD when I stood on the yellow footprints. So now, did you take a leave of absence from, from the CFD to do I, this? I did. I applied for a leave of absence, got accepted, and, uh, you know, moved forward with everything. It's actually kind of funny. When I went into uh, the recruiters, I it was looking, I was looking, I wanted to fly helicopters, honestly, but I went into the Army, and the guy's uh, putting his feet up on the desk and undoing his tie, and he said, you know, there's a lot of BS that you got to go through to, to do that. And I go, well, that's what I'm here for. And then <laughs> when I walked into the Marine recruiter, it was, uh, I was more or less interviewing them, and they were kind of, so what can you do for us? And uh, and I told them what I could do for them, you know, and and I just liked the, you know, the bearing, the military bearing that they portrayed, and the rest was history. I got no regrets, only wish that I did it sooner. That's great. And I, I would share a story from us that one of the legends of 26 truck, Bill Stewart, 
was a sergeant in the Marine Corps during Korea. And he's now in his 80s. And when he comes back to parties, he still scares the living daylights out of uh, guys like Donnie Hayden, Jay Fischler. It, it's, it's unbelievable the bearing that this man has even today. Uh, what, what do you need to I, I, I could oh. see that. And, you know, it was one guy really didn't talk to him too much beforehand. But afterwards, boy, he knew me for like his whole life after I joined the Marine Corps, you know, because he was a Korean War frozen chosen Marine. So, wow. uh, so I get that. And uh, it's just a, a spree de corps. It just, it, it's forever. Yes. It, it really set me up. And then my son now is, he's always wanted to be a Marine. I didn't push him into it. I said, because I don't want you sitting in some godforsaken place and complaining, why did my dad make me do this? So that was all based on his decision and stuff. And he's having a great career uh, so far. He's overseas in an undisclosed location. He's uh, very proud of him. I can imagine. I can imagine. That's fantastic. How did your Marine Corps experience prepare you for continued service in in the CFD? I think it enhanced it, really. Gave me more discipline, more focus. I, you know, I'll be honest, I wasn't the greatest uh, student growing up through my grade school and high school years, but it certainly uh, tightened the screws to uh, allow me to think about what, what, what is important and, uh, and a focus. I mean, I was always into the job, but the thing about it is this really uh, gave me uh, such reverence and moving forward, just constant, uh, keep pushing yourself to be better and learn teach. Sure. And, and what are some of the leadership principles that you carry forward into your career as a firefighter and a fire officer? Well, again, for me, the Marine Corps enhanced based on the Marine Corps leadership traits and the uh, objectives of leadership and the leadership principles, to me, is the bedrock and foundation of the Marine Corps. But you, if you take the, the word Marine out of it and insert firefighter, I mean, and or just life living skills or principles and traits just makes you a better person overall. But it's not something that you read and you throw it aside. You really got to review them and continue to review them in order to be, like I said, a better person. You know, JJ uh, Tide Buckle is pretty much what it, our acronym is for, but the traits are just genuine qualities of personality and and it just continues to give you confidence respect loyal cooperation as as you go and if you're consistent with that these traits and the principles to me you're going to be a successful leader and the guys are and and gals will definitely respect that as long and as well as the the bosses but it's it's a continual circle where you got to keep trying to improve upon yourself but if you use those, to me, it's the bedrock and foundation of leadership, period. It works. Sure. One of the most remarkable aspects of the Marine Corps that, that I found as an outsider is just the, the devotion to reading uh, the Commandant's reading list and the principle that they expect more as you rise up the chain. That, that's yeah. a remarkable approach. I have to agree with you. My son, again... Not a great student, great kid. He did a book report three years in a row on the same kid's book growing up in grade school. You know what I mean? (laughs) And then he got in the Marine Corps, and he's telling me all the books that he's read uh, about leadership, about teamwork, morale, you know, mindset. I'm very impressed upon that. And he goes, oh, Dad, this is a really good book. And, uh, you know, and it's like it's it's great. And, And I believe you know, the Marine Corps had gave them that uh, focus, which is great. Sure. I mean, to understand that, that people like General Mattis and, and Kelly have personal libraries with thousands of volumes, I just, uh, I'm astounded that more organizations haven't adopted this, this type of approach. Well, I can't speak for other departments. I could speak for mine, but it's certainly been brought up, uh, not just by myself, but other uh, Marines and just different focus and things uh leadership training try to adaptability but anyways you you got to keep pushing down the hallway 
I mean, that's the way. You pull up at a fire, you got to get down that hallway. That's the same thing with leadership. You got to keep pushing forward every single day you come to work. Yes. Let's segue into our next one, Chief. What was it like being a fireman in Chicago during the early days of your career? Certainly, the early days of my career is uh, just old time school. To get on the department, it was, uh, you know, you would compete against 35,000 people at least to get the the job. I think there was a test in 1978. I was a little too young to do that because I was in high school. So I missed that. And the test doesn't come around. It comes around every eight to 10 years. So then we hit in 1980. The unfortunate is, uh, you know, is that we had a Chicago fire department strike. The firefighters went out on strike and a lot of people were brought in to the department. So there was kind of a no need because they were they had more in abundance, people on the job and everything. I mean, some good things. We got our first contract and a lot of good things that came out of the strike. But, you know, it was infighting. It just uh, I'm glad I missed it. So. But I came on a year after 1981. It was actually, I was taking suburban tests. And, you know, I kind of segue. I always joke, uh, I was, in 1979, the Pope came in the Grant Park. It was right after I graduated high school. And he gave his mass. And I was a scout leader at the time, our Boy Scout. They brought us in with the Red Cross. And we worked with the Red Cross. I was right by the, the, the altar, so to speak. And uh, going into the crowd, they assigned me. It was kind of funny. It was some guy fell out of a tree. I go running up there to try and help out. And there's all these Chicago firemen standing around. And they all look at me like, what are you going to do? And I look and I'm like, what am I going to do? What are you going to do? So I go down. I start helping the guy out, with, you know, kind of burn up. They were, they were stretcher bears, the probies or candidates, as we call them in Chicago. And they had an officer that was in charge of these different teams. So they assigned me with the team. And they were, like, put, pretty much putting me in charge of them. And I'm, like, just a kid. And uh, <laughs> But talking to these firemen, they all just sat there and go, you know, you'd be a great fireman. And that kind of prompted me on there. And I ended up going to, you know, there was no test for Chicago. So I did the EMT class. And then I got into paramedic school and then just involved myself with, with that Got on uh, a suburban department through a private contract doing EMS work, and I just was enthralled with the fire service. And that's all I wanted to be then was a fireman. Screw to being a cop, not kidding. I I love the police. So that was a way of getting in the door of the Chicago Fire Department was through that. And and did a couple years on that, and that's where I met all these great guys. I mean, we had a great rapport. I remember going to fires and being on the hand line, you know, uh, with these guys. Come on, Patty. Come on with us. <laughs> All right. You know, and it was just, it was great. You know, uh, we had a great relationship around the firehouse and everything. And then uh, and when I went with the Marine Corps, I came back uh, in the candidate school and just uh, on a whirlwind. I just had, had a great experience throughout that. And just like I said, uh, the veterans, to me, because they were a paramilitary organization, and I hate the fact that we're kind of losing that, but I'll tell you what, we got some post-9-11 vets that are on the department, and it gives yeah. me great promise that they're still embracing that culture that I grew up in, because that's what it's about. It's uh, I always say, don't forget where we came from. I understand where we're at. And uh, that's the big thing is that we need to uh, not lose all our traditions and culture of the fire service. Yeah. And I was honored to have great firefighters that I that I worked with. Very honored. That's fantastic. And you talk about the, the military influence. At present, the FDNY has more than 1,300 of these uh, patriots, and they are a remarkable bunch and a, rem- a remarkable generation, I, I would add. We're in good shape in, in, in so many ways. Probably our toughest battles will be uh, in, the, in the next few years internally, city budgets. But uh, I think we'll get back to that in a little while. We'll go to our next one. What were the challenges of assuming a formal leadership position in the Chicago Fire Department when you were promoted to lieutenant? Being the young guy, I would say, going from a fireman 
to a lieutenant is a very big push. I used to act up and uh, on my old company, we all knew what each guy was doing. I'll never forget, I had a legendary captain, this John McNamara. Uh, you never know. You might be related, Jim. But uh, <laughs> we all came from the island. So, anyways, he uh, just drilled, schooled, taught, mentored, you know. And, you know, you get off the rigging. He would like, boy, I just love watching you guys go. And that, to me, was a compliment from him which he didn't hand out a lot of compliments. But it was, if things were great and he could stand back and see it go, it was wonderful. And when I acted up in a position when we had we had some actors, whether, you know, we're allowed to do that contractually, but uh, I'd get off the rig and I'd say, wow, there's a piece of cake. I could be an officer. But as soon as <laughs> I went out, it was like a rude awakening. This ain't the companies that I that I worked with or the guys and, you know, and some people, uh, they just didn't know their job or their officer wouldn't allow them to do anything unless he said so. That was probably the biggest challenge is making sure, never assuming people know their job and you just got to motivate them. And cause uh, you know, I believe that it's gotta be ownership. So, but I, I'll never forget going over to a slow house kind of a retirement house. There's all these old guys. And uh, it was kind of funny. I'm looking at some of these legends that were there and they're got a foot out the door. But, and I remember joking with them at roll call saying, uh, all right, let's just presume we get a fire today <laughs> and, we, and we have to make the roof. Is there anyone that can climb a ladder without a walker <laughs> and get up on that roof? You know, and they all start laughing and then joking and stuff like that. So it was great. It was yeah. great. But that's the biggest challenge is, you know, when, for a new officer is to learn that uh, you still got a job to do and you are in charge. And it doesn't matter how senior they are, you know, use them to your advantage. But you got to motivate them. And we still got a job to do no matter what. So that took a while to do. And it. I would say a good year before you go off of that. You know, but I I just say just be consistent for any new people moving up. Sure. And and what was the most challenging rank that you served in? Challenging. Well, that first year being a fireman to lieutenant, I guess would be the big challenge because there was a lieutenant's test and we all studied hard. I landed really good, and then apparently they lost the results. And then they had to have another test. And then guys that didn't do so good the first time, senior guys, you know, there was a lot of in-house bickering about the results. I still landed really good. I was in the top first call. And the thing about it is I would say that would be the challenging because, and I understood where the, the older guys and senior guys were coming from. But in the same sense, it, that to me was challenging. Now, Going from captain to chief is another step up because you're not just looking at your company or the company that's next to you. You're looking at a fire scene or an incident and multiple people, and you're relying on the officers to give you good intel as well. Again, that first challenge a year, whenever you move up, it takes a good year, I would say, to uh, springboard. That's it. Sure. And you spent many years in the company officer's rank as a lieutenant and as a captain. What advice would you offer to newly promoted company officers? Be consistent every single day. I mean, I always tell these guys, when you, when you work you know, in a fireman, and you could be a guy who sits in the chair every single day and takes a nap in front of the TV, but when you step into the role of this, as an officer, don't forget where you came from, but know where you're at because you're in charge of however, wherever you are in the fire service, three, four, five, two people, whatever, that are below you, you are in charge of them. Uh, so many people get confused with leadership for telling people what to do. To me, the advice is uh, uh, be the person that the, you want people to follow you, not just because they have to. I mean, stand up, be a leader, keep pushing forward, 
you know, it's never, never given. I always hate the collar grabbers. See these? Yeah, I'm sure you've seen those. <laughs> right? You see it, right? I call them collar grabbers. See these? Yeah, that don't make I like that. what those are, you know. So, uh, you know, it's a process, and it's it's got to be earned, and you got to earn the rights to those people without a doubt, you know. I go back to the bedrock of the leadership, Marine Corps leadership traits and principles because that, to me, is you got to own it. And just you got to mentor, you got to be consistent, and you got to learn the job, be a student of the job without a, without a doubt, you know. And make sure that you care. You care for your people that you're in charge of. Leadership's not being a charge, but it's taking care of those that are in your charge. So that, to me, is my word of advice for a new officer. I mean, there's a lot more. And be humble. Be humble without yeah. a doubt. As I always say, if you think you know this job, uh, throughout my years, I never said I knew it all. Because this job will definitely humble you real fast, and I've seen it throughout my years. I was just going to say the exact same thing. You know, no matter how much time you have on this job, because this job is so intense, so variable intense. No two days and no two runs are ever the same. The moment you think you understand all of this and you think you're, you're beyond studying, you should you should you should mail it in, because now you're a liability. Well, I agree, there, Chip. It's like that one guy goes, I've seen it all. I've seen it all. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I always tell guys, watch out for that guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what makes this such a challenge. I mean, uh, you could be on my, my former captain, Charlie Roberto, you know, four decades on a job, and he would be the first to tell you, you know, got to keep learning, got to keep going. And that no two days are ever the same. Great job. No. I actually had a, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to break on myself, but I tell you, one of my partners in front of everybody said, Pat Maloney worked to the last minute on this job. So, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> yeah, you got to, you know. Yeah, there's nothing in the world like this. And, and we'll talk a little later about separation but because it's so incredibly hard. But this is where people outside of this entity just, just can't understand this. But we'll get to that in a little while. No, I, so I've the, waited it for years, so we could wait, Jim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, but uh, but what you have to say offers a lot of guidance, if you will, and understanding for those who are about to do it. Uh, because one thing we don't do in this job, we don't actually teach people or instruct them or guide them on how to separate. You know, oftentimes it's an injury or, you know, you hit whatever the retirement date is in your department and they tell you, well, now you got to go. Well, that, that's not a good way. You know, the military's learned. You can't just cut people. You've got to gradually ease them out. We could certainly do with, with that kind of guidance. Yeah. We'll go to our next one, Chief. You, you have friends and contacts in fire departments across the United States. Which aspect of organizational culture do you think is unique to the Chicago Fire Department? Wow. I mean, again, I'm very humbled with, with all the people that I met throughout my career FDNY, uh, New Orleans, California, Australia, France, I mean, Colorado, everywhere, you know, and the one thing is we're all kind of wired the same. Even though California has nicer looking rigs and they're shiny all the time, no <laughs> rust on them, uh, we're, uh, we're, we're still wired the same, and that's the unique thing about it. What's unique to the Chicago FD, I don't know. We're old school, all that stuff. I, I just hard to say. Coming around nine eleven, working side by side, I've never had the desire to go to New York, and that was on September twelfth. I landed there, and I, I met all you brothers, you know, and sisters, and yeah. uh, and other people, and it's just uh, unique. You know, two thousand ten, ran with a few of the FDNY guys and Australians, and people from around the country and we did a run across the United States and arrived in New York. And I remember talking to Liam Flaherty from rescue Two, cats on rescue Two. We, we became good friends. I says, I I'm starting to feel comfortable as I've had yeast. I'm starting to see rust on the rigs. So that was always a funny thing. And, uh, unique, 
I don't know what unique is for the Chicago Fire Department. We're we're bred uh, and wired as fire firemen, firefighters, and uh, I'd like to say that we're unique. I always say it doesn't matter what company you're on or what department you're on. You can be in the slowest fire company in the nation, but that there is the greatest company in the world. It's yeah. got to be. And that's what you got to believe in. Every single day you come into work, whether you're a fireman, a probably candidate, senior officer, that's your company, and that's what's unique about it. It's the greatest company in the world. That's that's all I can say. So I know well, we said. can fight and talk about it, Jim. FDNY is the greatest fire department in the world, but I'd like to say Chicago Fire Department. Every, you know where I'm getting at brother yeah you know. and 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 everyone should yeah you know it, it's no matter where you got any man or woman willing to hurl themselves uh into the into the bowels of hell has as my utmost respect and a lot of Absolutely. these places that we're that we've come to to learn and become friends with departments that have zero manpower and these guys and gals are doing it with no resources no manpower and just absolute heart and um you know, it, it's humbling to see what, what other guys and gals do in this country. Um, and you just have more and more respect for them. You know, what, what we do in, in New York and Chicago, people are always going to talk about that. But um, we should stop for a moment and, and look at these brothers and sisters in the rest of this country who do so much with so little. Absolutely. I always said when I when I went on the, our squads, which are our heavy rescue units in the city of Chicago, I I says I remember going down to New Orleans and we were doing a there was a tanker operation at a fire where they're drafting water and all. I'm like, Jesus, Chicago, <laughs> the, the hoses and ladders come with the building. What the heck? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's incredible to be part of this whole thing. Continuing along that line, my understanding is that Chicago has a residency requirement for all members of the Chicago Fire Department and Police Department. Is that true? It is. Yeah, we have to live in the city of Chicago. It was first mayor Daly years ago. You know, he was concerned about, you know, the city going out and they're paying the taxes for these pay- payrolls. And, and you got to live in the city of Chicago, the border all the way. Suburbs don't count. A lot of us live in areas where there's a lot of police and firemen. So yep. uh, kind of have the same thought process and all that stuff. You just hope you like everybody. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that having guys live in the city, does it impact or improve performance? I don't know if it impacts or improves performance about living in. But no matter what, it's it's about ownership. This is my city. I love this city. Honestly, God. And, you know, I know we'll talk about things in the, in the past, but, you know, just what has happened this past year just breaks my heart because I have such great pride for the city of Chicago. And I like to think that I served it honorably. As far as the requirements go, well, it's like your home team, right? Uh, whether you're grade school, high school, football, whatever sport you played, you take pride in it. You take pride in the neighborhood you live in. That's what you got. Sure. If you could improve officer training in the Chicago Fire Department or the fire service at large, what aspects would you focus on? The basics. Teach them how to lead. You know, had a discussion with somebody who was in charge of the Fire Department Academy. He stated to me at one time was, you know, we want to get away from the military aspect. We want to make the thinking firefighter. And I go, hey, come think all you want. You don't want to think too much. You got to move forward. So decisions have to be made. You know, I think there should be more hands-on training because many new officers, you know, you take a test. First off, I would like to see where you have to have so many credentials before you can even take a test. And just a college degree in microbiology shouldn't be the factor of, you know, of a college degree. I'm talking about uh, certifications and everything with the state uh, fire marshal's office. And I think leadership training is and, and a promotional exam is one of the greatest drills on the Chicago fire department because it keeps everyone in the books. And then, but 
they need to go over with hands-on skills as well. Like I said, many of them are afraid to drill or teach because they don't know a particular subject or they never handled a K950 saw or threw a ladder or chopped on a roof. Well, we need to get them up there before they tell somebody. It's very difficult to tell somebody to do something if you've never done it yourself. And I always believe that you shouldn't order somebody to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. So, and because of the lack of knowledge or practical skills, uh, they fail as officers and they kind of be quiet and stay away. And and that's just not a healthy environment. So mental memory is a big thing, practicality, and just teaching them how to lead, you know, using your mindset, you know, that's what I, I firmly believe. That's how it should be done. What's the minimum number of years you have to have on in Chicago in order to be eligible for a test? Believe it or not, you can have a year on, but you can't take the promotion, I think, uh, for 54 months or something like that till you're on. So you can land number one on the exam after having a year on the fire department, but you can't get promoted until you got 54 months on the job. So that, our union, through negotiations, put into their contract because before it would be like, uh, you were setting guys up to fail, or guys and gals. Yeah. You know, they take a test, and then uh, they're in the jaws of death. And in front of their fire company for the day is uh, four 25-year members average. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like, that just doesn't uh, go so well on both sides of the fence, you know. Yeah. It, it would probably help everyone involved to push that just a little, you know, have five, seven, eight years on the job and, and then take the test. I mean, we have people who've rocketed up the ranks, like post 9-11. We have guys now who are, who are battalion chiefs with like 12, 14 years. You know, that, that's fantastic students. You know, is that the best for us? I don't know. Is that the best system we can produce? I'm not sure. I think you're getting it because, uh, like you said, it's just it's timing. You know, and you get a lot of people uh, leaving the job and they got to fill the ranks. So it's all about timing, you know, and, uh, you know, on our job, again, the, the test doesn't come around all too often. I believe that there should be more testing and rotate that list around and keep the, keep the guys uh, and gals in the books and even ownership. Because, like I said, it's the greatest thing is a drill. And if you didn't pass at that time, I mean, geez, it was one lieutenant test. It wasn't for 10 years. And then you got some young guy that comes on, and he just happens to time it right. And then, boom, the next one, the next one. So I think timing of, of promotional exams is very important. I think there should be a lot more moving forward because it keeps everyone. I also think certifications, time on a job, time and rank before you can take that next promotion. It's all about don't set your department up to fail. That's what it's at. And, again, you don't want to put somebody in a position that they're uncomfortable with because, again, you need to, as I said, this job will humble you real fast. So, Yes, yes, indeed. Chief, as the chief of special operations, what were some of the challenges you navigated as a leader and manager? Well, I have to start with the members of the special operations first off. They're a great group of alpha guys and, and gals, and they're just, uh, they get a call, they get a run, the freight train's moving forward, which is great. But, you know, training about disciplines was another challenge, kind of keeping guys, some guys that are into it, some guys that aren't. And you got, you know, one squad company that's uh, great on ropes, the other one's great on going to fires, you know, uh, pulling ceiling. You want ceiling pulled? Yeah, I want that guy. It's just being really diverse. i kind of got to keep a dynamic leadership ability with them, uh, kind of making it fluid because every personality and characteristic that I had to deal with was was unique. <laughs> every company, whether every shift, was, was a little bit different. But it was great. It was great working with them. I think we stole it from uh, – Rescue tool is we're not here to make friends, but I, I tried to make it a point is that we got a job to do, and after us, there's nobody else. So if it ain't getting done, it's got to get done. 
Because again, there's nobody else after us. And we owe it to the citizens of the city of Chicago that we're going to bring some calm to the chaos when we pull up on the scene. And I'm not saying that as being arrogant. It's the truth. There's got to be an end, whether it be positive or negative. We got to finish it and hopefully we finish it right. So that was always a challenge every day. I think also some of the stuff is very tough about when you have a mindset, you know, Right after 9-11, all of us captains uh, of the units, and we pushed for a lot more equipment and training, and it was a hard fight uphill. But, you know, whatever the new flavor is in the room at the time, trying to get training, realistic training and equipment is kind of tough when you're pushing uphill, and and I understand the management's got to have budgets and everything but also dealing with their egos if they didn't care for you or anything, the special ops units, because of, sure. I don't know, we took their line from them or, or stole their flyer or something. I don't know. So, but you know what I'm getting Yeah. Sure. I mean, uh, you mentioned nine 11, just the challenge like in, in New York of, of retooling all of those units and the amount of time and energy it takes to bring one of these guys up to speed, you know, there's challenges in line companies, but it, it was even a larger challenge trying to navigate special ops guys who all of a sudden needed to know all these other other elements and, and, and areas of, of expertise that we never thought about before. That, that had to be a challenge for you as well, trying to get all of these guys trained and all of these things you know, to, to be prepared for any uh, contingency. Well, absolutely. I mean, going to fires is our bread and butter without a doubt. And we all love going to fires and they, you know, forcing doors, uh, crawling, sucking the nails out of the floorboards, whatever it takes. But, uh, you know, when it comes to the technical part, uh, our scuba diving, you know, ropes are, you know, it's using your mind in a lot of things. We we involve ourselves in some pretty, you know, man in a machine and uh, just trying to figure things out. That was, is definitely a challenge uh, every day, but until the next, thing comes around uh, we gotta we gotta stay on our game it's not made for everybody and i always said i remember i was getting a bunch of marines when i was a captain of squad two and the commissioner says you can't have all marines i go why it works so <laughs> <laughs> i go i'm diversifying i got an i got an army guy i got a navy i got one air force i stuck him on the other shift i'm kidding so. <laughs> <laughs> Always the Marine. <laughs> there you go. Chief, how did the city of Chicago and the Chicago Fire Department handle the COVID crisis? Well, it was a learning process, and I think it was a continual learning process because the science and the, the professionals kept changing this and that, trying to keep guys and gals in the firehouse, staying away from each other, very difficult to do. You know, we're all huggers. Hey, how you doing, brother? And we're all huggers, <laughs> stuff like that. Mask wearing. Well, I tell you, it's it's not unlike years ago. Hey, put your SCBA on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so put your seatbelt on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As I always say, uh, two things firemen don't like: it's changing the way things are. <laughs> so. <laughs> so. You know, Perfect. Uh, when you get no, it's a truth, right? I mean, I, I don't, uh, on a multitude yeah. of things. So, you know, you get hot houses and you get a bunch of guys that are positive, and then you're trying to figure out where they're at. You know, offering suggestions about keeping people in their houses and rehiring. I think you guys in New York did that, which kind of uh, suggested that, and of course that didn't go. And then it was keeping guys in and gals in their districts came down to it. So no details to other districts and all that stuff, but you still got a lot of people filling in for those that are off. And it's just, it's a manpower nightmare. I know that it's just being consistent on it. I mean, we're not alone as we look nationwide. We're hoping we're going to push ahead and get on the other side. It's, It's to me, we need to look and learn from this. Because, again, we're ever-evolving as a fire service. Who knows? It could be a biological agent uh, down the road. 
unfortunately. You know, I hate to think that, but that's something that we need to consider. And how are we going to deal with that moving forward? Yeah. Yeah. What happened here in New York in the spring was just beyond description. Engine companies were doing, you know, CPR on, on, on people day and night. It was it was horrendous. And to see the city now, uh, like even in Times Square now, there's nobody there. I'm hopeful we'll bounce back, and I'm a lifelong New Yorker like you're a lifelong Chicago guy. I think we'll come back, but we have not learned much. And it also kills me that as you know, as a 9/11 guy, coming out of that, we heard you know, all these commissions were like, well, never again would will will the homeland be caught unprepared for anything. That we'll have plans for everything that'll you know, we'll work on this all the time, and uh, didn't happen. You know, it, it didn't happen. So. Um, yeah, you know, if we can at least again get our foot in the door and keep moving forward in a positive direction, no matter what, we need to do that. We need to have a game plan. I mean, that's got to be laid out because this was new, no doubt, but the next one's going to be new too, and we got to figure it out. Yeah, and as you know, uh, Jason reminded us of what Jim Russell had said that this is, you know. This had happened before, <laughs> and there's no mm-hmm. there's no historical understanding of the past. Uh, it, it just comes back to bite us. Let's shift a little, a, a couple of gears here, Chief. You contributed considerable insight to Leadership Under Fire's Civil Unrest White Paper. Can you tell us about your experience as a commander during the civil unrest in the summer of 2020? Sure. Well, first off, Leadership Under Fire. Uh, Civil Unrest White Paper and the previous White Paper, just a great group of individuals to have the honor to work with. Jason developed a great group of people, and just uh, those that gave the insight was tremendous. So kudos to that. And uh, Civil Unrest, uh, you know, we kind of been down the road in the past, and I think we'll get into it, but it's just this summer was, again, it was we all love going to fires, but not on that scale. That just, uh, it's pain for your heart, you know. I mean, it's just uh, kind of knew that was coming, and we're kind of moving that way because we ended up putting uh, task forces up and standing by, and it's still, it, it can deplete resources, and I, I commend the, the members of the Chicago Fire Department, the the rank and file, just uh, the troops did a wonderful job going from one incident to the other or multiple incidents, and we kept injuries to a minimal. I don't have the numbers, but when you're involved in that situation, you got to look out for your troops, and you got to be situational awareness because you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you got a hydrant man trying to open up the hydrant. You got someone who's fighting with them as they're trying to connect to the hydrants or they're stealing his equipment, you know, so you can't hook up the hose. You know, you're going in, you're going, pushing in. People that are trying to get in to put the fire out as, as people are coming out of looters and all that stuff, It's or you're getting hit with bricks and bottles. So it's unique, and it's it's sad. It's uh, Unfortunately, we live in a fractured society today. So that's pretty much it on that. Like I said, I commend uh, what they did. I just feel bad for the, all the businesses, the small businesses, and the people, the good people in the neighborhoods that that were affected. And just the burning, it was uh, it was a tough thing. Like I said they, it, we had more fires, according to the media, we had more fires than the 1968 uh, riots. So, wow. And in 2020, civil unrest was the product of racial tension and anti-police sentiment. Historically, civil unrest and subsequent looting and arson has always transpired on celebratory occasions. Can you tell us about the unrest that followed the Bulls' uh, three-peat, the back-to-back-to-back championships? Yeah. The first one was very minor stuff. 1992 was uh, the Rodney King verdict. And L.A., New York, and a lot of big cities around the country, same thing, civil unrest, fires, all that. Didn't happen in Chicago. We were stunned, you know, and glad, honestly, that people were civil. So shortly after that, 
the Bulls had their repeat championship. So I think it was an opportunist time to celebrate. Let's see, the game was over. At, I remember it clearly, the first game, 10 o'clock in the evening. At 10.10, we went out the door to our first fire, and we didn't get back until 8.30 in the next morning. It was one after the other, you know. And uh, going down the street, you get pelted, rocks, bricks, bottles, ready to pull up at a scene, and we just keep going. We just went to the fire down the street instead of that one, you know. So it was plenty of work to do, and it was kind of unique. So we weren't ready for that. And uh, so the next following year, uh, 93, uh, we had task forces up and police escorts and all that. And then again, 96, 97, 98, same thing. We put up uh, task forces at a fire academy with spare rigs and just uh, loaded up. Uh, There was a learning experience on that behalf. And one thing was, well, Chicago police were busy themselves, so we ended up having state troopers or county sheriffs following us around uh, each vehicle and stuff. So, again, with this recent civil unrest, you know, you, you load up fires here and there, and next thing you know, so we went with our task forces. And I think back in during the Bulls uh, celebrations, we had the uh, Mabus the mutual aid uh, box alarm system that comes. So you had suburban departments coming into the city of Chicago as well, helping out because things were kind of crazy. So I would say we'd like to take care of our own. So with the past civil unrest, uh, we pretty much did that with our task forces. Task force was based upon two engines, one truck, two ambulances, chief and a EMS field chief that would we would drive together as a pack and then go from one fire. The idea was to do a quick knockdown and, and move on. But, you know, being a firefighter where we are, uh, you go to work, you go to work, and then when you can, you move on. So I understand about that, the, what the bosses wanted to do with the quick knockdown, but it's hard once you're committed, very difficult to leave something that you're committed, you know, to go to the next one. So, sure. So that's uh, we kept pretty busy. And during that period, do you utilize something called the prize rig? Prize rigs were just spare rigs, beat up old rigs that we that we could get and pump, and we put extra hose on, and that's what the task forces manned. You yep. know, with the recall of firefighters and officers to to man those companies. So we kind of. We were strength in numbers then by doing that. So the prize rigs, well, that's a unique term because I think we got 25-year-old prize rigs that are frontline rigs right now because they're spare rigs that, because uh, their sign rigs are down. Yeah, we need Chicago Fire Department's hurry. So the term prize, yeah, it's, it's definitely a prize, all right. It's <laughs> so... That's great. Chief, I mentioned your contributions to the Leadership Under Fire Civil Unrest White Paper. I should mention that you've been actively contributing to the LUF mission and concept since its inception nearly a decade ago. I believe that you came to Leadership Under Fire by means of the late Captain John Figiano. What do you personally think makes Leadership Under Fire unique and important for the fire service? You can't ask that question without first talking about John Vigiano, just an honorable, honorable man, a true leader, a mentor, a friend. It's kind of unique was uh, in 2010, December, we had a fire, roof collapse, two members gone, were killed, and there was uh, at least 21 firefighters trapped. And it was on the 100th anniversary, the 100th anniversary to the day of the stockyard fire where 23 firefighters were killed and multiple were injured 100 years apart on the anniversary. It's just, it was kind of very same cold day just before Christmas. And of course, being on the computer and reading people and 
saying why it was a building and how terrible was it? And, uh, you know, is it worth the life, you know, of these players? Well, of course not. But it, it just killed me is that uh, bothered me a great deal. And then I read Jason Bresler's uh, paper. And I reached out to John Vigiano, who's you know, was a legendary yep. fire officer. Oh, yeah. God, what a great man. I rest his soul, but I'm honored to know him. But and I said, this guy's got to be a Marine. And he goes to me, Pat, that's the young man that I'm talking about. you got to meet him. He uh, locked me on with Jason, and, uh, you know, we've been friends ever since. And it was pretty much the make yourself hard to kill it was about combating the element of complacency uh, essay, and it was spot on. And it talks about, you know, the paradigm shift and, you know, being technical, physical, and mentally aware of what's going on, you know, fostering a, a positive fire culture of discipline on the fire ground, you know, and he was comparing it between combat and, and the fire service. And to me, there's no difference. You know, many years ago, prior to 9-11 and all that, we had, uh, during peacetime, if you call it that, was, uh, we, had, we had Marine officers and enlisted that came to the Chicago Fire Department and interviewed a lot of us as officers of what kind of decisions do we make on the fire ground. So, so the parallels were quite the same. And I'd like to think that's what it needs to maintain is the culture. So leadership under fire, the mission and concept is, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. Well, first off, it's run by a Marine. Okay, I'm a little partial, but I'll tell you, it just talks about the paradigm shift. It, it talks about the mindset. You know, it, it's stuff that you might have done, and I never thought of it. Tactical breathing, being an athlete, uh, and using the science of an athlete, and putting it towards the fire service. I was like, wow, it blew me away. It's like, what a concept. You know, and you mentioned General Mattis. I always remember he says uh, the most important distance on the battlefield is the six inches between your ears. And I just thought that's a great concept. And that's what leadership under fire, I mean, stands by. And I learned more about uh, mindset and, and how to optimize human performance. And, and I think more fire department should be involved in it without a doubt i mean it's just it works in the in the sports and just think uh it's the bottom of the ninth and it's three two pitch and you're down two runs and also the guy cracks the ball in the end of the grandstands to me that's a that's a home run and you win the game and that's discipline and mindset you know for that moment and there's no difference on the fire department and that's what I loved about leadership on the fire and continue to love about it and believe in it because that's what it's about. Did I answer your question? <laughs> oh, and then some, yes. Uh, this, uh, the past five years has, has clearly been the, the most amazing five years of my career. I think I've learned more about this craft and about myself than I have in the previous uh, 20 plus years. This will fundamentally, well, go ahead, Chief. No, I commend you, Jimmy, because uh, I never met you until I think it was uh, out in Ohio. And when you got up and you, there's your senior man uh, yourself and just talking about how you kind of, you got re-energized. And to me, anyone that could tap into anything like that that can improve you, whether it be in life or definitely for the job of the fire service, I commend anyone, and that's what it is. It's just being constant. It doesn't matter how many years you got on. You got to keep pushing forward, and I think leadership under fire embraces that, you know, and I never thought about the mindset, you know. I mean, I did. You got to have the right set of mind, and I also think it's it's a valuable thing with the, the current atmosphere of PTSD and all that stuff. I think it only allows fire departments to be more successful. And I think leadership under fire is spot on with it. Yes. And not only to make us better firefighters, but better people. Absolutely. 
Chief, we'll move now to the safety issue, the limits of safety. Chief, you consistently went to a lot of fires over the course of your 39-year career. You went to fires where men were killed early in your career, and you went to firefighters where, where, where men were killed later in your career. The conventional wisdom of the fire service is that we have the ability to command, control, and perform at fires in such a fashion that ensures everyone goes home. Everyone meaning firefighters and fire officers. What are your thoughts on this maxim? And do you think that the conventional wisdom regarding safety does us a disservice? First off, uh, we should never forget those that came before us and those that give their lives and their families and stuff, without a doubt on that. Um, God bless them. And because of that, I think we need to honor those that gave their lives Every single day we get on, put on the uniform. Every single day we get on the, on that rig and go out the door when the bell rings. I mean, that's our job. To quote an old chief, uh, the most heroic thing you ever did is raise your right hand. And then after that, it's all in the line of duty. Now, I'm not saying that it needs to be, you got to be psychotic about it or, you know, oh, we lost somebody. No, 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 we shouldn't. But we need to be proactive. We need to look and be situational awareness. We need to develop ourselves tactically, physically, and mentally every single day we pull up on a scene. We got to be ready. Every run should be a fire. There's got to be a paradigm shift that, as to quote Jason, make yourself hard to kill. The safety culture, you know, safety is about putting your gear on and putting your seatbelt on. But we don't stop being who we are. We're firefighters, all right? Joe Public, families, if they're trapped in a building, they need to know that Chicago Fire Department or any fire department, hometown fire department, your hometown fire department is going to come and rescue them. They need to believe that. When we start putting ourselves before the public, I have a problem with that because we need to embrace being who we are. We don't stop being who we are. You know, we don't stop being if somebody dies, then we should learn from it. We should try to, to, for that not to happen. Somebody falling down through the floor, somebody, the wall coming down. Okay. You know, if you look at all these NIOSH reports, it's about water supply, uh, you know, lack of communications uh, or the person got lost or, you know, they're almost the same, but yet we still tend to do that. And instead, and I understand what everyone's saying about everyone goes home. Again, if you're going out on combat patrol to say that you're not setting that team up to be successful with the mindset. Now they mean, well, God bless them. But the term safety, we don't work in a safe environment. We work in a very dangerous environment, and it's ever-changing. And unless, you know, for every action, there's a reaction, whether it be positive or negative. And what we need to do is we need to train hard, realistic, and push forward, and and don't give in to the safety culture of that this is not a dangerous job. It is a dangerous job. But we need that mindset to control that and be proactive every single day that we come to work. That's all I can say it. I mean, I can say a hell of a lot more, but hit it hard from the yard. Uh, you know, you do that, but don't get stuck in the mud. Push forward, keep moving forward. Don't give up terrain. Take the hill and keep going. Spoken like a true Marine. <laughs> That's terrific, Chief. One thing on safety that, that Jason and I learned, we were in Colorado uh, this fall out in the Windsor Severance, uh, one of the most amazing and forward-looking places. Uh, I'm still shaking my head at some of the things that they do. They're, they're, they're so ahead of the game. But we were talking about safety, and, and one of the brothers got up and said, uh, safety is a thought, not a fact. <laughs> and uh I had never heard it expressed in such a term, but it was just so unique to hear that from, from a group like that. 
Chief, thank I you for like, the comment. I, I like uh, quick and quick and easy terms. There you go. So <laughs> we're farming, right? We want the one pager. That's right. I, I just upgraded from crayons. So, <laughs> Chief, in your opinion, what are some of the growing or emerging threats that you think have the potential to greatly challenge urban fire departments in the years ahead? Well, unfortunately, I mean, we talk about civil unrest and everything. That's the big thing right now. I think we need to still focus on that because we live in a very fractured society today. So being able to man and look out for the best of our people so we can do the job that we're sworn to do, we're still going to put ourselves in harm's way. All right. We're not going to be safe about it. Uh, the troops got to move forward. So whether it be an active shooter, unfortunately, uh, or civil unrest, and be prepared for the next item that's to come because uh, we're in an ever-changing environment. Technology is a great thing, but uh, we still got to put the water on the fire. Still got to treat the bleeding people, the victims. We still got to rescue people, uh, whatever is thrown our way. Uh, we need to evolve and keep moving forward. That's all I could say. Sure. That's, that's, it's well put. And I would add, from my perspective, not only an expanded array of challenges that will face uh, urban fire departments, but the compounding factor of tight budgets uh, for, for the foreseeable future, which is a very difficult challenge. You know, to expect us to, to broaden our range of, of responses while at the same time fighting for scarce resources will, will challenge us even further. It's a very difficult time for the, for the, fire, for the fire service looking forward. Chief, what were some of the best moments or highlights from your 39-year career? The best moments or highlights? Wow. To put it in a sentence, it's uh, the people. With the people that I work with, um, just I'm honored and humbled, whether those that, that were before me or those that I left that are still working. Just uh, humbled and honored uh, by that. And... Uh, it's the people, the runs, the adrenaline rush, the bell ringing, going out the door. I'm definitely going to miss that. But going out the door with the great people that I work with, that's it. That's well said. I'm, I'm reminded when Chief Vinny Dunn retired after 42 years, he issued pretty much the same thing you did, but he, he phrased it as, for 42 years, I, I stood on the shoulders of greatness. That's, that's for it's sure. A, it's a it's a privilege to be part of this thing. Chief, you had one hell of a send-off recently for your retirement. In true Chicago Fire Department fashion, you had guys make the trek from New York and California. Was it difficult to say goodbye? Without a doubt. I mean, uh, I had a send-off. I've been on the Chicago Fire for 39 years, and I, I was just uh, knocked my socks off the send-off that I had because uh, very rare is there's such a send-off like that. And the people behind the scenes that did that, I wish to thank them very much. And the people from New York, California, Michigan, I mean, other places as well. It, is it difficult to say goodbye? I, I'm still here. As I told you, Jim, I'm, I'm wearing retirement like an ill-fitted suit. So <laughs> I, I feel like I'm on furlough, but I have this guilt stuck in my head because I feel that I left good people uh, behind and uh, had some unfortunate reasons or fortunate reasons and I'm blessed uh, to give time to my family and take care of my health now, so. Yeah, 39 years is, is a career and uh, to get a send-off like that speaks volumes about the man that you are and uh, it's fantastic. And uh, you earned all of that. What advice would you offer a young firefighter coming onto the job today? Be proud of your job. Be proud of uh, the uniform that you wear. Don't worry about learning the tricks of the trade. Learn the trade. All right. Be a student at a job. Just don't know what a tool is, but know every reaction, whether you put it to use. Stay positive. 
every single day look out for each other. Uh, I always said to the guys, we need to earn the right to be here every day. So earn that right to put that uniform on, earn that right to uh, go out the door and uh, earn it for the guy and gal that you're working with next to Learn. Realistic training and always just keep moving forward. There's so much to learn on this job. Don't stop learning. And whatever you learn, teach it and mentor to the guy behind you because they may be your boss one day. Excellent words. Thank you so much for that. Chief, finally, what are your plans for your post-Chicago Fire Department career? Well, let's get on the other side of this COVID, and I'd love to have a beer with you, Jim. So, uh, (laughs) but uh, just family, try to get better help. Uh, I don't know if I can get my golf game better, all right? I got a good, we talk about being consistent. Well, I got a consistent slice, and uh, just travel. (laughs) I'm trying like to like to travel and uh you know visit my my uh, family one thing is is about my family is I'm very honored that you know my kids they're all working uh, they all have a background of service my oldest son was in the peace corps for 3 years and he continues to look out for other people my second son is a uh, uh Skokie fireman Connor well first one's Patrick Connor and my daughter Tara is looking out for artistic type kids and stuff like that on the spectrum. And my wife's a nurse and my son Rory is overseas in the United States Marine Corps. So I'm very blessed with a great family and I want to spend time with them. That's fantastic, Chief. And I can't wait to come out and have a beer with you. And just one other thing I have on my desk right now, that challenge coin that you gave me in Columbus, it sits in the same place all the time and every time i'm at my desk i have the chance to look right at it i've never forgotten that and uh i consider it an honor uh, to be friends with a man of your character and uh thank you so much chief well i'm i'm humbled and i'm honored with your friendship jim and uh you know we'll see you on the other side of this it's not goodbye it's till i see you soon amen Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.